The following is a conversation with Stephen Reed. Experienced in financial planning, private equity, he specializes in economics and has maintained various roles in financial services. Aside from his financial expertise, he is an avid pilot, hiker, and pizza enthusiast, and I am proud to call him my friend. This is the Anthrofuturism Podcast. To support it, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now, dear friends, here is my conversation with Stephen Reed. So, going into this Great Depression, what are the biggest financial mistakes, pitfalls that people often make, and uh, how to avoid them? Well, I think it's a little bit of a loaded question to just assume that we're going into a Great Depression. Uh, One mistake that I feel like people make is they tend to overestimate the probability of specific black swan events. So obviously, like we just came out of a pandemic in 2008, we had a financial crisis. And now there's a war in Russia that could very well spill outside of the borders of of Ukraine. So those are all unforeseen events that have a major impact on the world economy. But if you had asked someone five years ago, what they were worried about, they likely wouldn't have mentioned any of those three things specifically. Uh, uh, Well, the great financial crisis, obviously they would have, but uh, we, we tend to, we tend to worry about specific things happening and then something else happens. So right now, obviously we have a lot going on in the economy that seems to be pointing in the direction of recession. Um, but how deep and severe that recession will be, we really don't know. Um, in fact, if we what's interesting is typically the definition that economists use for a recession is two negative quarters of real GDP growth. And um, despite all the political back and forth about whether that definition is valid, and currently the federal government has decided not to use that definition, had they uh, had they followed that definition, they would have declared a recession this year around uh, around the the third quarter, um, but when when the GDP growth data came out for the third quarter of 2022, uh, in other words, just a couple of months later, they would have declared that recession over because real GDP growth resumed. So. What's interesting is, depending on how you look at it, we may have just finished the recession. Now, in 2023, we could go back into something deeper. I'm not confident that this is over, but I think it's a little bit pessimistic to assume that we're going into a depression. So, is there um, a defining, <clears throat> is there a metric that they use to define the difference between a recession and a depression? It, I, I don't believe there's a specific metric, although I could be wrong. Typically, just a depression is a very severe recession. Did they so, call it the Great Depression while they were in it, or did they call it a Great Recession? And then historians looked back and went, no, that was a depression. That's that's a good question. I'm really not sure about that. I, I, think, I think they did refer to it as a depression. I don't know if the term Great Depression arose during that time. But what's interesting is during the 2008 financial crisis, they did use the term Great Recession during right. it, which I think felt very contrived at the time. Um, and what's, and I feel like they've kind of stopped using that terminology now. It's now referred to as the Great Financial Crisis. But um, for a while, they really tried to make Great Recession happen. And in my mind, it kind of stuck. 
What do you think that is? Is that not wanting to admit how bad things really are? And uh, because it can be pretty demoralizing to call it a great depression and refer to this thing that we have in history that might cause panic if we call it that. Like if we started calling the war in Ukraine, World War Three, it would exacerbate people's anxiety with it. Do you think that's why we move the the terminology? Yeah, that, that could be a valid point. But I think the other aspect is just that it was so severe that it's a really high bar to cross. Um, like the number of people, the, the number of people that were out of work um, during the Great Depression, we just haven't come close to that since then. So kind of in the way that uh, World War II is a very high bar for something to live up to the name World War, it would have to be truly global because that's what World War II was. Yeah, that's a good point. I think un unemployment is probably the biggest determining factor there. You know, we haven't really seen bread lines yet. So I think it's fair to say we're not in a great depression. Um, you're right. It was a loaded question. Um, but I do want to answer your question. So to, to answer your original question briefly, I think there's reasons for optimism and there's also reasons for pessimism. And uh, like any other economist, I'm going to hedge my bets. So I'm not going to make a, a call on which way I think it's going to go. Um, but because a severe recession is a possibility going into 2023, people should avoid taking on additional debt. They should make sure that any high interest debt they have, for instance, credit card debt, they are paying down. Um, and then once they've paid that down, they should make sure they have three to six months of living expenses set aside in cash um, or in a readily accessible, safe investment like a bond a treasury bond specifically so that that way if uh if the shit does hit the fan they're capable of weathering the storm what are i bonds so i bonds are something i love to talk about which you must know um they are probably not a great option for people to build an emergency fund if they don't have one already uh, but they are a good way to grow an emergency fund once you hit at least that three-month point. Um, they are inflation-protected bonds that you can purchase directly from the Treasury Department in an amount of up to $10,000 per year. Uh, there are some other, quote-unquote, loopholes that can allow you to purchase more. Um, but they they pay whatever the inflation rate is over the previous three months. So currently, they're paying something above 6%, which for for an investment that is completely risk-free is really incredible. Um, the, the reason I say they're not suitable for building a new emergency fund is that they do have a one-year lockup period after the initial purchase during which you can't redeem them. Once they're past that one year, you can redeem them at any time. So if you have some extra cash to set aside, I think it's a great way to, uh, you know, to kind of build on your cash reserves and have that available as an emergency fund in the future. Um, but an emergency fund needs to be readily available. So for now, it probably needs to be in in a savings account or maybe a treasury bill, something that you can get within within weeks rather than within months. Makes sense. What is FIRE and how is it achieved? So FIRE is financial independence or early retirement. The very simple math is that you need to have enough income from your investments to support your living expenses. And then at that point you can, uh, you, you've achieved fire in practice. What that means is you need to set you need to, you need to set aside in investments 25 times what you spend on an annual basis. 
that's based on something called the 4% rule, which means that you can withdraw 4% of an investing portfolio per year. And you can expect that likely that account will never run out. It's not a guarantee, but uh, there's a good chance that that account will support you for the rest of your life if you're only withdrawing 4% per year. Um, so once that 4% is enough for you to live off of, then technically you no longer have to work anymore. Um, I used to be a big fan of kind of the fire movement as they're calling it, but um, what I've kind of realized is that I think while it can work really well for some people who have very specific goals um, and, and are willing to be very disciplined with it, the problem is that for most people, it does take a long time to achieve. So maybe 10, 15 years, maybe even more, um, even if you're saving aggressively. And during that time, if you're, if you're making major sacrifices in order to invest a lot of money, I think it can be hard to maintain balance. Like you don't want to put your younger years, the first, uh, you know, 20 years of your career, uh, between the ages of 20 and 40 to, to sacrifice those so that you can have, so that you don't have to work later. Um, even though I'm, I'm a huge fan of investing, I don't think that's necessarily a good move, especially because you may find that when you get to the point where you can retire early, um, you've been doing it for so long at that point that it's really hard to spend uh, or to, to transition from saving to spending. Um, and also you've lost a lot of your interest because your focus has been on working and investing and, and cutting corners to set aside as much money as possible. I would suggest to people that they live below their means, that they save a significant amount of money and that they do plan for retirement and for rainy days, um, but that they not be afraid to spend money on things that they enjoy because we only get to live once and you never know, you know, how long you get to do it. Right. Yeah. It seems like I, I think the the motto or the mantra of fire is live like nobody else today so you can live like nobody else tomorrow and it's kind of this sacrifice really hard basically live in a in a shed <laughs> and eat ramen noodles for a decade and then you can you know be financially independent in your mid-30s and by nature it's seems very like not kid friendly so if you wanted to raise a family or something like that um it's pretty robotic in nature in a lot of ways but I, I do get the appeal. Um, people don't want to be, you know, uh, caught in a dead end job that they hate. And so it does seem to provide a lot of hope for people. And I think um, maybe one of the biggest values that it's brought is uh, financial education to the masses by talking about and educating about a lot of these ways to save and practices. Um, yeah, it has. I think another another couple of downsides is number one. Um most of us have expensive life events like, um, you know, getting married, buying a home, uh, going on vacation, um, having kids. And if you're, if you're really into the fire movement, I think it makes those events very stressful because if you do the math, you really do sacrifice a lot of your retirement years every time you make a big purchase. So it, it's designed to take the stress out of finances, but I think sometimes it's so far to one extreme that it ends up making it more stressful. Whereas really the right answer is probably somewhere in the middle 
Um, obviously don't live today like you don't have a tomorrow. <laughs> That's <laughs> foolish. Um, if you make a good income, being living paycheck to paycheck is just kind of a recipe for disaster. Uh, but going all the way to the other extreme of eating cat food when you could afford to go out and, and enjoy yourself once in a while, uh, to me, it's a little bit, it's a little bit foolish unless you have very specific goals that justify that. The other problem is that a lot of people who popularize this movement, they make relatively high incomes. Um, and if you, if you have a lower or middle range income, it's still possible, but it's much more difficult to do. So there's a lot of people on YouTube and blogs, for example, who were software developers earning over 150,000, maybe in a dual income, no kids relationship where their household income was over 200,000 and they're saving a large portion of their income in a low cost of living area. Uh, but that's not feasible for everyone. Yeah, I was thinking, it seems like um, fire has become harder to attain and it used to almost be advertised or accepted that this is very attainable by your early to mid thirties. And it seems like that's been pushed back to your early forties, maybe mid forties, um, inflation, lifestyle changes. Um, what do you think about that? Do you, do you recognize any major driving forces in that? And is this just a fire specific thing, or is this an effect on a wider scale of ge the general economy and yeah, well, if, if you look at a lot of people who who began their careers just uh, before the 2008 financial crash and then uh, achieved fire in recent years, um, or they, they would have, I guess, began their career in the early 2000s and then achieved it in the late 2010s, um, a lot of those people really had a tailwind throughout their entire investing careers because, you know, maybe they were able to buy stocks after the after the 2000 financial crash. Um, they were able to buy stocks and, and often real estate during the 2008 financial crash when everything was trading at really low valuations. Um, so they're buying these investments at a bargain. And then because we went through this money printing saga over the last 10 plus years, um, they then were able to, to achieve phenomenal returns during that period of time that made it much easier. When you're, when you're beginning your career at the top of a bubble, instead of at the bottom of a, of a trough, uh, you then have kind of a headwind that those individuals didn't have. So rental properties that are actually going to, um, actually going to be profitable, they're still out there, but they're much more difficult to find now. Um, we're seeing interest rates rise, which means that you can't you can't as easily just borrow cheap money, um, leverage to the hilt, and purchase all of these all of these investment properties, um, which is one of the common ways that these people were able to achieve early retirement. Um, and then also the stock market, even after the correction that we're in now, um, is currently still at a relatively high valuation, which would suggest that risk-adjusted returns after inflation over the next decade are likely to be lower, which doesn't mean that you shouldn't invest, but it does mean that something like fire may be a little bit more challenging. Yeah. So this um this kind of narrow time frame that we're looking at between, you know, 2008, 2010 and and uh 2019 is kind of the exception rather than the norm. And it kind of distorts our 
perception of um opportunity in a way um and i do feel like this is somewhat of a general trend that economics has um because it seems like it's a relatively new field compared to other scientific fields if you want to call it a scientific field or um there's a saying that you know historic economists need to study more history and historians need to study more economics but i think one of the problems is that economics for the majority of human history was very very basic and um it's only somewhat recently become more of a complex system requiring more deep understanding but it lacks you know i guess 200 years or so of maybe 300 if you want to extend it of um data <laughs> so yeah I'm curious if you have anything to say about that. If not, I can just move forward. Yeah, no. Um, I mean, I, I think I think there's there's definitely some truth to that. Like economics is not new, but it it's new as being any kind of a rigorous practice. And it's also it's so intertwined with politics that it makes it challenging, you know, in, in the same way that uh there's this controversy around global warming even though there is a scientific consensus it's really hard to talk about in an unbiased way because politics are attached to the issue um and one of the reasons that i think people tend to criticize economics is because it doesn't align very well with the sort of two-party system that we have in the united states so regardless of which side you're on there's going to be issues where where economics has pretty good evidence that you're wrong <laughs> and that's not so it's not a science that is convenient for a lot of people especially in politics who are really doing things in their own best interests rather than in the best interests of their constituents who want uh, a strong vibrant and fair economy right there's a lot of incentives to right. um you know mold your conclusions around a certain ideology especially if you're being funded by any given party or side and that's um that was actually very much what plagued biology in the 20th century um and in fact the nazis were extremely invested in like genetic research and that ended up stunting genetic research for decades afterwards because we obviously didn't want to touch it it became taboo and then the communists basically completely rejected the notion that gene, genes existed at all. They recognized they existed, but they were not funding it. And it was a uh, taboo and something they would not touch because they believed they, they were materialists and they didn't want to admit that there's any kind of um, inheritance outside of the control of the culture or the state. And uh, so, yeah, I, I could see in a way that the mod, modern politics, I would like to see in the future, some sort of divorce or separation or recognition of um economics as its own field of study if i'm not sure how this would work but i guess in the same way that biology has now been divorced from politics which is good i hope that that happens in the future i hope so too um but but to be clear economics does have weaknesses as well um i like to compare it to meteorology you know if if the temperature drops to the dew point we know there's going to be condensation, which could be in the form of rain or or just dew or fog uh, or snow, depending on the temperature. But what meteorology doesn't do very well is telling us 
what the temperature and, and weather conditions are going to be in March next year. So right. yeah. in the in the same way, I think economics does us a real does a really good job of answering specific policy questions. So for example, we know we have very good evidence that rent control um, is not a valid solution for holding down rents and making sure that everybody has a place to live. Same thing with single family zoning. Um, we know that those two policies lead to segregation, they lead to higher housing costs, they lead to environmental degradation, they lead to more expensive infrastructure, um, and they really cause a lot of social ills. And the reason we know that is because there is a clear causal link um, that can be established, which is that when you implement these policies, you end up restricting the supply of housing over the long run. So if local politicians would listen to what economics has to say in that area, um, we could really do a lot of good. But when economists are trying to predict when the next recession will be, uh, that's an area that they're really not that well suited for. So I guess you kind of answered this, but I'm curious if you have anything else to say on the topic of like, what do you think the field of economics generally gets wrong or doesn't fully understand, if anything? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think in general, um, using the economic way of thinking to look at policy and to look at business decisions is a really good way to use it. And trying to forecast long term just isn't that helpful just because there's too many variables and it's it's a chaotic a chaotic system. Um so I used the meteorology example a minute ago, but if you look at chaotic flow in a fluid, we really don't even know how to model that because all the different water molecules are going in every which direction instead of flowing together. And that's partially why weather is so difficult to predict, but it's also why economics is very challenging because there's all of these independent actors, there's millions of data points, millions of variables, and all we can do is create an oversimplified model that tells us, hey, some of these some of these things that are correlated with recession are pointing in the direction of recession. So for example, one that gets pointed to a lot is the yield curve inverted, and that's typically followed by a recession some number of months later. Um, but does it tell us exactly when? Does it tell us how deep it will be? Does it tell us that that's even a certainty? Not at all. So that's an area where it, I think, people are overconfident in economics at times. Right. Um, well, with AI advancements, we've gotten a lot better at modeling turbulent flow and um, <clears throat> particle states and turbulent flow, but this is always done in the framework of how will this vehicle, let's say a car or a Martian lander, um, interact with turbulent flow. And I think they basically extrapolate turbulent, the average behavior of turbulent flow simulations um, and so what you're really doing is just increasingly shrinking your margin of error. Um, but I'm curious if AI or if economics, and I don't know if you know, but, um, basically supercomputer AI applications in economics and, and getting more data and being able to create more sophisticated models, which end up yielding more predictive power over 
longer times span times longer <laughs> projecting further out into the future for sure yeah so I, I think that's a clear area for advancement um just because the more the more data we can feed into more advanced models surely the predictions will get more accurate and i think i think um machine learning is is probably a huge area for opportunity in that area um, I think the other thing I'd like to see more of in economics is rigorous controlled studies, but they're just so difficult to do because they're often expensive to run. You have to incentivize participants to to make decisions and then see how they behave. Um, you, you know, you mentioned you mentioned the averages of particles in a turbulent fluid, and I, I think that's actually a really great analogy because. Um, you know, when we when we look at economic behavior, we look at the theoretical, rational human being. And on average, people do tend to make fairly rational decisions, at least in, in some way. But that doesn't necessarily make it easy to predict. Because while, for example, an example in behavioral economics that's often used is the, of irrational decision making is that someone may be on a diet and they want to lose weight, but then when they sit down at the restaurant and look at the menu, they decide to order dessert, even though that puts them over their calorie goal for the day. Um, that's not really an irrational decision. They're just choosing at that moment to value the dessert at higher than they value their goal of losing weight. So it's not necessarily um, irrational, but it's very difficult to predict because really that's that's all an internal thought process that we all have. And if you're, if you're an economist trying to predict the decision that a thousand people will make, you can't just look at it like, Oh, this is what I would do. This is the rational decision-making process that I would follow. And therefore that's the decision that these people will make. You might be able to make a good guess that a majority of those people will follow, but there's going to be people who have a different, a different set of logic that they're using to arrive at a different answer. Yeah, I was thinking, I wonder if there's a rationality index, like if you can figure out a percentage that a population is makes rational, like I know economic, one of the problems is that we can make perfect models, but then you have, it might be impossible to figure out um, a rationality index because it's extremely context dependent. Um, right. Does that make sense? If I'm I not really, what do you mean by a rationality index? figuring out how often people are rational versus irrational. And then if maybe that could be an average, and I feel like that would actually depend on, see, this is what I was going to get to. It would depend on so many different things. Um, where I think it would at. depend on the context because in that's what I mean. The context you could I, say, like, I might be rational in one situation, right. um, but not in another. I was going to say I, cultural context boiled down to individual context, or even just like what, if you're going to purchase something on Amazon, what advertisements are being put in front of you at that exact time. Right. And then it's so. Well, and part I, of the problem is we, we might make a rational decision, but we're using inputs that are changing based on our emotions. So like the, the theory in behavioral economics is that we often don't make rational decisions. Um, and I think that is true in certain circumstances, but I also think we tend to, we tend to have an overly strict view of what rationality is. And to me, rationality is just having, uh, having a model where you're comparing outcomes and then making a decision. So if the, in the decision between cake versus no cake, 
um, I might have, you know, a, a marginal utility that will cause me to make one decision versus another. Um, but if the inputs to my model are being changed by an advertisement that I saw for chocolate cake, or they're being changed by, uh, you know, a, a TV ad that I saw about fitness, then maybe I'm making a rational decision based on where my emotional state is. But I, I think ideally we'd like some kind of higher order rationalism that exists outside of an emotional context, but we're very fickle beings that can kind of change our view of what we value from moment to moment. Right. It almost becomes like the um, universal um, simulation to where if you want to simulate the universe, the simulation itself becomes the universe. It's almost like you can't simulate every single thing um, without having a computer the size of the universe. You know, it's right. <laughs> it would just end up um, being that thing. And so that's what I, so if we go back to our turbulent flow, like we're able to look at turbulent flow states of water in many different um, cases across the earth, you could find turbulent flow examples in the Himalayan mountains or in a laboratory in your bathroom sink. And so this is a very isolated thing that exists everywhere. And then you can study it and then figure out, you can extrapolate uh, trends, but there's only one world economy and it's new. And so we can't look at like a thousand earths with all of their own world economies and then start applying the same principles. Um, but if simulation theory is correct, then maybe that's what the aliens are doing. They're running us to figure out their own perfect economic model. <laughs> they they could be, they could be. And, and right, we don't know how much of our economy is naturally evolved versus how much of it um, is culturally created. And, um, that's kind of a large part of the debate between different economic systems. Like is, is a free market sort of a naturally evolved system that is uh, the most efficient way to conduct an economy? Or is it something that originated in European culture and then was exported through colonialism? That's kind of the debate between the left and the right when it comes to economics at its root. Um, but and you can make good arguments for both because it certainly is connected to European culture. Um, but there's also a lot of good arguments that it's a naturally evolved system and an efficient way for conducting an economy. Uh, but because we only have one earth, there's no way to empirically test that. We can yeah. empirically test whether a, a particular economic institution makes sense. Um, but that's very expensive and difficult to do, but we, we can't go one step further and just run, uh, run a global economy, randomized placebo controlled <laughs> trial. Right. Yeah. And we've only industrialized once, um, unless you're Graham Hancock, but, oh, we've only, we only have one, uh, case study to look at of, um, the emergent effects of industrialization. And of course they came from Europe. So then it's like, oh, is it European? But it, if we had, you know, done this several times if we could look back at i get, i think the most advanced some of the most advanced economies pre-industrial did uh approach the same kind of conclusion that we've seen um they neared industrial i wouldn't say they got near industrialization but their financial models got more and more complex in uh the islamic golden age in china um and so yeah i, I don't think it's just a european phenomena but there are obviously cultural uh, biases built into any system 
from wherever it came from. Although I'm not sure how impactful those actually are um, or if it just is an easy scapegoat sometimes. <laughs> but Yeah, well, I, I think you can look at specific economic institutions and you can make the conclusion that they did evolve independently multiple times. So uh, money was invented in multiple locations because it's an efficient way to exchange value. Fractional reserve banking was independently invented in multiple countries in multiple different time periods um, because it's an it's an efficient way to store, exchange, and distribute value across time. So I think we can learn a lot from history in that area by looking at what economic institutions um, popped up again and again throughout time and also don't really have any competing alternatives that work. If you were put in charge of the U.S. economy today or were an advisor to the president on economic policy, what would you do or say? So the federal budget is kind of something that I, I don't even want to think about it, just because it's been through decades and decades of complete, completely negligent mismanagement um, by both parties. But if I was put in charge, I would have an obligation to address the deficit. Um, not because I believe that it's always bad to borrow to fund important projects like infrastructure um, and not because I'm against all federal spending, but because the level of the federal debt has become so catastrophic that I'm gen genuinely very concerned about what it means for our future. Uh, we're above 100% debt to GDP. Um, and as interest rates rise, more and more of our tax dollars are going just to pay interest on the debt. So I can see a very plausible near future where every single dollar of current tax collections are just going to pay interest on the debt. None of them are going to fund any of the important things that they need to fund, like the military, uh, social programs, schools, infrastructure, et cetera. They're all just going to pay interest on the debt. And that means we're either going to have to make some very serious sacrifices in terms of what we pay for or we're going to have to drastically raise taxes. And neither one of those is a good thing. Um, I think we can afford to cut some fat out of the federal budget, but it would have been a lot less painful if we had done that 10 or 20 years ago um, when this issue was still very much foreseeable, um, but we didn't, and now we've got a problem. And I don't care what side you're on, your party's to blame. I, uh, I heard General H.R. McMaster comment that this is, probably one of the greatest strategic weaknesses that we have, because if we were to get involved in a, a war with China today, um, how are we going to fund it basically? And war bonds and all of these things that we kind of fought the last world wars with um, came from a deep, like people purchased those because they kind of trust the society to pay them back. They try, they have a, they're literally investing financially in um, winning the war and uh, and in the treasury of the state. And then if we're already paying, you know, we have no money because we're just paying interest. This is not good. And if we default, um, it undermines trust. So, yeah, this is not right. a good situation. We're, we're headed towards insolvency and all, all 435 members of Congress and each of the last 
four presidents has been completely aware that this is an issue and they've done nothing about it. They sold you out for their own political gain. Right. And there's no incentive to fix it. It's the, uh, I think, Aristotle Candyman analogy. Do you know that one where basically no. like he he was very anti-democracy because he said that people are just going to vote for the Candyman versus the doctor because the right. Candyman will sell you sweets and tell you what you want to hear. And then the society will become obese and unhealthy and keep electing the Candyman who sells them candy versus the doctor, which will say, no, we need to eat healthy you have to eat your vegetables and exercise and it's going to be painful but it's how we're all going to survive and then in a democracy nobody votes for him i'm not anti-democracy it's just that was his argument and it does seem like there should be some sort of incentive system to uh sacrificial incentive system for politicians in a way um i'm not sure how that would work it's just the current system as it is is what's really led us down this detrimental path um yeah, it's essentially the principal agent problem that you see in, in corporate governance as well, where like uh, corporate uh, corporate executives have an incentive to create near term stock returns, which might mean, you know, laying off key contributors from their organization in order to cut labor costs, uh, cutting back on future investment um, or doing stock buybacks that temp temporarily drive up their stock price, but not investing in the future of the company because that's gonna pay off under the next CEO. Um, and I think you see that a lot in Congress. No one wants to be the guy who says, okay, we've been doing stimulus for the last five years. The economy is growing now. We need to, uh, we need to either raise taxes or cut spending in order to balance things out. Um, but the reality is that if you're going to run deficits during the bad times, you need to be willing to run surpluses or at least have a balanced budget during the good times. And that means that the government will be a drag on the economy. And that means that it will hurt politically whatever party is in power. And uh, neither of or none of the recent administrations have been willing to uh, to pay the political cost to do the right thing for the country. Yeah, and this plagues uh i guess us and western finances at almost all levels i was surprised to learn that basically the same problems are happening on the local level to where um cities have a uh, they have a budget and politicians or you know your city council your mayor are in charge of that budget and nobody wants to raise taxes to pay for things like you know city services but as the city grows um, in size or the population demands more services, lifestyle increases, inflation, or like if you're in Austin, everything becomes more and more expensive, wages go up. But if you're the politician who says, I'm going to raise taxes, you're not going to get elected. And if you do raise taxes during your term, you're not going to get reelected or it significantly hurts your chances. So the way that they keep funding this the way the, the solution to this is um through growth so developers come in and they say i want to build some houses and the city charges them an application fee they charge them a, a hearing they charge them fees all along the way it's, it's fees all the way down and even if your project is not uh does not go through you've still ended up investing you know ten twenty thousand dollars to just propose this to the city um and they make it this way on purpose, but that's where the city gets most of its funding. So that's why cities are now are then, you know, extremely incentivized to become developer friendly or welcome to um, 
they it's it's kind of a sick game to where you they want developers to propose and go through this process but then often they don't want development to end up going through because people are nimbies people don't want actual development to happen and change in their city so it creates a um a weird tricky convoluted scenario um and yeah and and there's some truth to that but also i i do think the local level you don't see the completely unconstrained financial irresponsibility that you see at the federal level because uh, the funding actually works quite a bit differently. Like at least in in Austin, Texas, where I'm located, uh, what tax increases regularly do come up on the ballot and they regularly pass in the form of bond referendums. So you're borrowing money, but you're attaching that that loan that you're taking to an increase in taxes that is earmarked specifically to repay that loan. And even in the most recent ballot uh, election, there were several of these tax increases, for instance, in the local school district that did pass. So people are willing to fund things that they believe in, like schools. Um, But the difference is that at the local level, those tax increases are often tied to the specific spending priority. Um, And also, it's not it's not under the direct control as much of elected representatives. People also just don't keep as close an eye on local government. They're more interested in federal issues, even though local government really has more of an impact on our day-to-day lives. So uh, really, if you look at it, like as a percentage of GDP, state and local debt is not nearly as much of a problem as federal debt is. Um, And in fact, like in Texas, Texas actually regularly runs uh, budget surpluses. It does have debt like every other state, but on a year-to-year basis, uh, they're going into the next legislative session with a, with a fiscal surplus, um, which they can choose to allocate in the form of tax cuts or um, or increased spending in various areas. Um, and was that because of the structure, like Texas's um, government is just better? Or is it because they have so much growth coming in um, from? you know, the stereotypical Californians, but also everywhere else. And then even before that, we had massive growth uh, from oil and things right. like that. So is that why? Is it external factors or is it that they have a better model? Yeah, it's both. So Texas has a rainy day fund, which was filled up, I believe, specifically from oil tax revenues or royalties. Um, so that's that's one part of it. Um, but also because it's a fiscally conservative spa- uh, state, they are very... Uh, they do have relatively low spending in a lot of areas compared to other states. Um, And then because the economy is growing so fast, the tax revenues are consistently increasing uh, pretty much year after year. Uh, For example, in property taxes, property taxes have uh, continued to grow because home prices are growing rapidly. Sales tax revenue is growing because people are spending more. So you've got more money coming in the door and you've got a relatively tight purse string that's kind of limiting what's going out. Speaking of government, there's a general notion that in the U.S., the government has no good role in the market, aside from enforcing regulations on corporations that would basically otherwise play dirty, cut corners, pollute rivers and whatnot, kind of this this narrative. And so essentially, the government's only real value in economics, uh, or so it goes, is regulatory to protect its citizens' health and well-being and the land environment. But I'm curious to what extent you think this is actually true. Basically, are there ways in which the government, like a top-down power, 
can really help stimulate the economy in a healthy and helpful manner? Yeah, I, th- I think so. So the kind of fiscal stimulus that we've seen over the past decade, I think, has been very unhealthy because rather than short bursts um, of fiscal stimulus to help kind of use excess productive capacity that we have during a recession. The modern monetary been, theory? No, more more like Keynesian theory. Um, the, the idea would be that during uh, during times when the economy is overheating, you kind of tighten the belt a little bit. And then when you have a recession, you use government spending to consume excess productive capacity, which helps get over the recession sooner. Um, and that's what's been tried during the uh, during the covid recession, during the financial crisis. Um, and, you know, it's, it's up for debate whether that worked or not. But what certainly hasn't worked, in my opinion, is the fact that they basically ran that fiscal stimulus almost nonstop from 2008 until until April of this year. Um, they never really made the necessary cutbacks to get back to a state of normal. But I think some government involvement that that is helpful um, is funding research projects that have the potential to massively benefit society, but which are not immediately profitable. So two successful examples from the past are the development of the underlying technical infrastructure that allowed for the internet and then space exploration. Both of those have either already or have the potential to be hugely transformative to society. Um, But when they were in kind of their nascent state, it wasn't clear if they would be profitable. So the kind of private sector potential investment was not as high as it should have been given the the potential that those technologies had. So I think having the government get involved in supporting those kinds of things can be helpful. Although, of course, there's certainly a lot of initiatives that they fund that don't pan out. Uh, but maybe as a society, we're willing to pay that cost. And I think two examples for the future are researching fusion energy. We've just seen a recent potential breakthrough in that area. Um, you know, if we if we can unlock true cold fusion that is energy positive, the transformative impact of that is almost unquantifiable, both in terms of uh, the economic benefits as well as mitigating climate change. Um, you know, the, the benefits to the the world as a whole will be just staggering. So we should be willing to sink some costs into that, even if there's a chance it may not pay out because the benefits are so huge. And then the other one is researching new antibiotics. So our medical system is currently working on destroying the antibiotics we have by over-prescribing them. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to live in a world where a paper cut is potentially just the end. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, (laughs) Right. So to me, we need to invest in making sure that that doesn't happen, but there's not necessarily a clear profit incentive to invest in researching new antibiotics now, while the ones that we still have do work for the time being. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of the advancements in antibiotics actually came from the rainforest in Brazil. Um, Things they found there, exotic species and plants and just the abundance and diversity of flora and fauna um, significantly contributed to it. But Brazil itself, the state has no basically like incentive to preserve it because they don't see any of that money. It all goes to U.S. Big Pharma, German. And um, 
So there's no payout for a scientist going into the rainforest, finding some flower that ends up being some super cure um, or this this month's super cure. <laughs> and then um, so that's something that I think has not really been addressed or talked about. It's interesting um, because, yeah, like it's almost unquantifiable how much the rainforest has to offer and from a purely compound molecular compound um it's like this, this giant pile of molecules to sift through and find scientific properties, but it's not treated or looked at that way. Um, but yeah, I, what you were going to say, what you were saying about energy and the government being this big incubator for research is similar to how infrastructure is the greatest investment you that the government can really make. Um, and like a lot of the R&D for energy that came after the OPEC oil shock in the 70s has um, really shaped our modern world uh, because the government just went through and just poured tons of money into um, everything from fracking to uh, the nuclear energy advances we have today, um, which has allowed the U.S. to be financially independent, but also um, allowed us to keep up with growth um, while keeping energy prices relatively stable, which is just significant and unprecedented pretty much like i think if you went back to the 80s people would not have expected that to be possible and this is something the government did because yeah the private sector is not going to fund very very early research um but the government does but then there's a lot of like gatekeeping institutional gatekeeping in the government and for good reason but also i think that can get out of control i've spoken to engineers who basically say you can't get bids or you can't get funding unless you play the political game and you have to wrap, you have to present proposals um, and kind of say like, oh, I'm going to work on this and it's really, really going to benefit the Navy and it'll really benefit you, your congressional district that makes it's involved in the shipbuilding process of aircraft carriers. And so this electric plane is going to, uh, really help with that somehow and it, you are like pretty much stretching it <laughs> and then you're yeah, incentivized it, to follow through on that so it becomes this convoluted kind of incentive gatekeeping power structure as absolutely it's it's a real issue i recently listened to a podcast uh i believe it was on the lex friedman podcast where he was interviewing a uh, a marxist i don't remember his name um but one of his claims was that rather than rather than allocating capital in the economy to the highest profit potential, we should use some kind of government grant process to allocate capital to where it can benefit humanity the most. And that's kind of along the lines of what I was talking about with research and development. But the problem is that I think I think it works well when you're doing it on a limited basis to find underinvested, technologies with huge potential. And in, in that area, we can kind of afford to eat a little bit of corruption because the benefits are just so huge. But if we were to do that on an economy-wide basis, I think it would be absolutely devastating for our quality of life because the government is not efficient at allocating capital for the reasons you mentioned. How can debt be good? Yeah. So, I mean, we just spent a little bit of time talking about all of the problems with excessive debt, but, um, you know, you mentioned infrastructure and I mentioned research and development. 
those are two things where you can spend money and potentially have a huge return on investment. And in principle, if if the return on investment is higher than the interest rate that you're paying for debt, then it makes sense to take on that debt. Um, if you look at both infrastructure and research and development, they're relatively small portions of the federal budget. So I don't think those areas are the issue. Um, and particularly while interest rates were low, it was potentially a good opportunity to take on debt to fund those kinds of projects. But it it needs to be limited and it needs to be used effectively because it can do more harm than good, as we talked about when it gets out of control. Yeah, I think the mainstream narrative that at least I grew up with is credit cards are bad, debt is bad, um, avoided at all costs. But then what really changed, like kind of was shocking to me um, when I was young to find out was that like a lot of people in Africa can't advance their situation in life and in other developing countries. But this is a specific case study in Africa where it's because they had no access to a lending institution, whereas if they had um they would have been able to go to school or do something that would have allowed them to then earn more. Um, and you see this on an individual level and also a statewide level. And this is what the World Bank is pretty much set up for, if I'm not mistaken. This is what its role is. Um, although how effectively that plays out is not something I'm educated on. <laughs> It seems yeah, uh, yeah, I'm not either. I mean, it's a good idea, right, to invest in areas that that have a lot of potential, but just lack the the capital inputs. Right. Um, but I agree. I don't know how efficiently that's happening. But then people say that's neo imperialism, um, although I'm not so sure. It seems yeah, like I, I disagree with that. If you're supplying capital to right. entrepreneurs in or or even governments in a country that are making the investments to to essentially change their economy for the better. And uh, we're essentially supplying the capital and just asking for a reasonable rate of interest. That's not, that's not imperialism. I think it's a net good for, for those societies and for the world. Um, when it becomes imperialism is when you look at what China is doing, where they're charging exorbitantly high interest rates and the punishment for default is that, Hey, we take your port. The, yeah. The, you build and it's now our port and now and we then can they bribe the politicians to exactly so that i that's where it becomes imperialism but and and i'm not sure maybe some of that is happening at the world bank i'm not informed on it but uh in principle just lending money to less developed countries so that they can become more developed i think that's a good thing right what is one way Wall Street is a net good for society and one way Wall Street is a net ill on society? Yeah, so first of all, Wall Street is clearly a net good in total for society. The role that it plays in allocating capital across time and uh, across individuals, um, allowing for a lot of that investment that we talked about in the private sector that's so important um, and balancing the financial needs of savers and spenders is really, really important. So Wall Street, for all its ills, really is a positive for society. And it would it's not something that we should just callously demonize. Um, so I, I guess I already answered how it's one way that it's a net good, which is just kind of the overall purpose that it serves. But I think one area that that is not a positive is the influence that they have in politics. In a, in a purely free market society, uh, 
businesses should be operating on the basis of of you know making their their products more affordable and widely available um, by reducing costs and increasing production efficiency and things like that. But there's a lot of what, what we in economics call rent seeking that goes on where um, sometimes it's more efficient for Wall Street to invest in influencing politicians than it is for them to invest in improving their own operations. And I think there's a huge problem that arises in capitalism when you transition from free markets to uh, to crony capitalism, where you have an intertwinement between the government and the private sector, and you end up getting the social ills from both. So in other words, you're, you're combining power, the ability to you know hold a gun to someone's head or put them in a cage uh, with the profit motive. Right. So I think that's like a, a big concern. I, I think privatization has worked really well in a lot of areas, privatization and deregulation. So look at the airlines, for example, airline travel is very cheap historically um, and widely available to people who never would have been able to take a commercial flight in say the 1960s or 1970s before deregulation. However, uh, in some areas we've taken that too far, like private prisons are probably the, biz the biggest example that I can think of because you're combining what is purely a government power, which is the ability to imprison people and use force and even lethal force to do so with a profit motive. And then you get this vicious cycle of uh, those prison corporations then lobbying the government to increase the number of prisoners that they have available <laughs> through things like yeah. tougher drug laws and longer sentences. So I think that's that's truly um, a social evil uh, that results from Wall Street and government becoming too intertwined. Yeah, and it very much looks like modern day slavery when they're out there building the roads and the prisons profiting from it. <laughs> It does. And, and prisons are supposed to be something that combines people who or that confines people that are a danger to society. Right. But it's very hard to believe that uh, people possessing the wrong plant or fungus really makes them a threat to society. We ought we need to be comfortable with people making decisions that we don't personally like and recognizing that just because we don't like those decisions it's not a crime. And that goes for things like abortion. It goes for uh, drug use. Um, morality is not the role for the state to police, especially when it involves locking people up in a jail cell. It's hard to imagine something less moral. Right. I, I agree. <laughs> well, thank you for your time. I appreciate you responding to my answers. <laughs> and uh, welcome to the human club. You've ascended from being a gnome. So how's it feel? Feels good. You're going to ask me being a gnome again. <laughs> Maybe I should redo that. I don't know how to, I didn't plan an outro. You were, you were doing so well until you got back to the gnome thing. I like, um, congruency or I don't know, a reference, I don't, <laughs> parallelism. What's the word? Bye. I don't know. Should I redo the outro? <laughs> you could just leave think... it like this.